before we get started this morning, uh, some of you guys know I've had an issue with, with some sciatica in my back, and I've gone to see the doctor and had an MRI done and, and these sorts of things, and hopefully uh, can get get stuff figured out and get a shot. But just a little bit ago, I was, I was standing down there and w- reached down to do something, and I twisted wrong, and and uh, so if I just fall over up here, everything will be okay. I'll I'll... Yeah, I'll just keep on going and I'll get back up. And but uh, just uh, just fair warning there. So uh, anyway, we'll be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter uh, thirteen this morning, verses fifteen through thirty-one. Nehemiah chapter thirteen, verses fifteen through thirty-one. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there. Last uh, week we had part one of this sermon. Um, and then I thought, you know, this week we'd have part two. And as I as I was finishing up this this message, I thought, well, we might have to have part three. But I think I was able to narrow it down uh, enough. So we'll we'll see. But but hang on for the ride. So this is uh, this week is is part two. Uh, last week we talked about two ways that God's house was forsaken. First, I said that uh, God's house was defiled. That was way number one, and this was because, uh, if you remember, Eliashib had allowed the Ammonite Tobiah to move into the temple and live in the rooms that were used for storage and for those that were visiting to stay. There were five ways in which Eliashib went wrong, and uh, I said, first, Eliashib cultivated wrong relationships. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Secondly, he seriously misused his office Thirdly, he frustrated God's work. Fourthly, sin is never an isolated phenomenon. And fifthly, um, he was not sensitive to the seriousness of sin. Also took time to make it clear that in the New Testament, believers are considered the temple of God and that we have the, the, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Furthermore, uh, the body of believers gathered together is is also the temple of God. So so we gathered together here this morning are the temple of God. Not necessarily the building, but the community of believers gathered together. It was clear that we can defile both our body and the community of believers by sin, and that we need to be on guard against sin, uh, not only in our personal life, but in the corporate life of the church as well. We saw how Nehemiah speedily removed the bad and how he replaced it with the good. And we are called to do the same in our life and in the life of the church, to speedily remove the bad and replace it with the good. We also looked at a second point when it came to the house of God being forsaken, and that was uh, the neglecting of God's servants. The Levites were no longer being supported, even though the people had covenanted together to support the Levites, they quit supporting them. Because they were no longer being supported, the Levites then had no choice but to leave the temple work and go out and work in the fields so that they could support their families. Now, because the Levites were no longer teaching in the temple, the people struggled spiritually as they no longer had godly teaching, and so they began to care less what God thought, and they certainly did not care what the Levites taught. And so they did whatever they wanted to do. I made sure that I relayed that uh, it is really never easy to be the only pastor in a church and stand up here and talk about giving to the servant of God. And I believe that was received well, at least as far as I know it was. If it wasn't, none of you all let me know it wasn't. But um, I, I trust it was. I closed out last week by simply asking you to pray and ask the Lord to reveal in your life if you've defiled the temple meaning your body or the church body, and if you've neglected God's servant. This week, we will continue that message as we will see God's Sabbath misused and God's standard ignored, and then we will also see what God, um, we'll see human problems and God's solutions. So if you are willing and able, I would ask that you please stand for the reading of God's word as we read Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 15 through 31 this morning. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. In those days, 
I saw in Judah people treading the winepress on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And they stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From this time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod and Ammon and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and I beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. Just just bear that in mind. And, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for the sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoadai, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, there are times that we read this, and, and sometimes perhaps we struggle with what we read. Lord, may you speak your truths to us this morning. May your servants hear, and may we respond to what your word says to us today. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I said last week, uh, this final chapter of Nehemiah is, is really a warning to, to everyone against spiritual carelessness. It reminds us just how easily and imperceptibly things can slip. And these last verses we read today are no exception. So first, let's see God's Sabbath is misused. God's Sabbath is misused. When God entered into a covenant with his people, he gave them visible signs to demonstrate his love for them and his commitment to them. He gave them a book, which is the law. He gave them a place, the tabernacle, and then the temple. He gave them a ministry, which was priests and Levites, and he gave them a day, which was the Sabbath. And at the end of each week, they were to devote themselves exclusively to God. So far in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, we have seen how these first three outward signs had become seriously defiled. God's words had been disobeyed in verses 1 through 3. His temple 
desecrated in verses 4 through 9. His ministers neglected in verses 10 through 11. And now we see his, his day, his Sabbath, is disregarded. Upon Nehemiah's return, he found that not only in the holy city, but also in Judah's surrounding communities, there was absolutely no attempt to keep the Sabbath day special. Even uh, though the people had agreed in their covenant with God to keep the Sabbath day holy, they quickly fall into the trap of doing business on that day, business as usual, even in the holy city of Jerusalem. Some merchants from Tyre who had no conscience concerning the Sabbath were doing a fantastic business of selling imported fish and merchandise in the city on that day. There's little doubt that the Jews had excuses, of course, um, uh, for why they didn't keep the Sabbath. They would call them reasons for violating the Sabbath. Like, well, if, if, I, don't, if I don't tread my grapes on that day, then, then they're going to rot. Or maybe everyone else is, is doing business on that day, and if I don't do business, then I'm going to not be able to compete with everyone else. Or if, if we don't buy all those imported fish, then that imported fish is going to rot, and that would be wasteful. Surely we don't want to be wasteful, right? So we got to buy these fish. You see, they would have justified their reasons for disobeying the Sabbath, much like we justify our sin today. Their unique relationship with God was no longer visible to others. The intention of the Sabbath was not only to honor God and, and help them, but to persuade others. The Sabbath had this immense witnessing value to it. It let other people know how much God mattered to them. In earlier generations, visitors to Israel could hardly have failed to notice how much they honored God. His will took precedence over their will. His demands uh, over their over their desires. On the seventh day of every week, Gentiles had seen for themselves how much Israelite farmers, tradesmen, merchants, servants, masters, housewives, and children actually loved their God. And Nehemiah makes a direct approach to Judah's nobles. The leaders of any community have a social and moral responsibility to put things right. Several characteristics of Nehemiah emerge from this narrative about how he responds to Israel's sin. So I want us to see three specific things this morning in his response. First, notice Nehemiah's knowledge of Scripture. Nehemiah's knowledge of Scripture. Nehemiah referenced harvesting and the loading of donkeys, and it reveals how well he knew the covenant and specifically the Sabbath regulations of the Mosaic Law even though people refused to obey it, ignoring God's word. Twice, Nehemiah used language from the teachings of both Isaiah and Ezekiel when he accused the people of desecrating the Sabbath in verses 17 and 18. Isaiah had promised that those who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it would have abiding joy. Ezekiel had lamented to the elders of Israel of the people's foolishness and their repeated disobedience over the centuries. And as a mouthpiece for God, he said, they did not follow my decrees, rejected my laws, and they utterly desecrated my Sabbaths. They were told to keep God's Sabbath holy, and that would be... Um, um, a test between them so that they would know that the Lord made them holy. And the Sabbath was designed by God not just to divinely, uh, not just as this divinely appointed occasion for physical rest, but as a prominent symbol that God was the Lord of the Israelites. And that they are His people. They are set apart for His work and His witness in an unbelieving world. Secondly, notice Nehemiah's use of history. Look at verse 18 again. Did not your fathers act in this way? And did they not, uh, uh, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Here, Nehemiah is drawing upon prophetic scripture. 
This time he's citing the instance of, of this brazen Sabbath breaking during the, the time of Jeremiah. Back in the 6th century, 150 years before Nehemiah is on the scene, the people of Jerusalem were doing precisely what Nehemiah finds the people doing again in the city after a period in Persia. The Lord had said to them through Jeremiah, be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath. There they were in the following uh, century. Here they are again. They're carrying a load on the Sabbath, doing exactly what they were doing before. Packing their wares under donkeys. Jeremiah had said that they were not to carry the loads through the gates of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah finds them doing exactly that. They were persistently and unashamedly bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath when they weren't supposed to be doing it. Jeremiah had warned his Sabbath-breaking friends that if they continued trafficking on God's special day, the Lord would kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem. It would consume her fortress. As every single Israelite knew, Jeremiah's prediction was fulfilled. The very gates to which the traitors had passed had been burned by Nebuchadnezzar's ruthless invaders. New gates have now been made and set up by Nehemiah's workers. Remember, we already talked about all that. And now here they are in danger of courting a similar disaster in exactly the same way as their disobedient forefathers. It's like Nehemiah saying, didn't you learn anything? Seems that people seldom learn from history. Nehemiah tries to warn them of the likely consequences of their sin by reminding them of earlier transgression and its evident and frightening consequences that will come from their disobedience. Jeremiah had contrasted those who traveled from Judah's towns and villages carrying their sacrificial offerings with those greedy merchants whose hearts were set on what they might gain for themselves rather than on what they might give to God. The people would have known exactly what he was talking about when he spoke of the grain offerings and the thank offerings, especially when they had withheld their grain from the Levites but were selling the grain for themselves. Thirdly and lastly, notice this, Nehemiah's resolute action. Nehemiah's resolute action. Notice that Nehemiah is not content with merely turning the people's attention to God's word in the scripture and his work in history. This was no time to sit and listen to to a warning from the past and just to face the challenges in the present. Nehemiah spoke sternly and he acted firmly. He used his gift of direct speech to significant effect. He rebukes the officials in verse 11 about their failure to support the Levites. And in verse 15, he warned the traders about selling food on the Sabbath. In verse 17, he rebukes Judah's nobles about the breach of law. In verse 21, he warns the merchants who put temptation in the way of the people by erecting stalls outside the gates, luring weaker Israelites to the other side of the city walls for buying on the Sabbath. He rebukes those who had broken their vows of loyalty to God by Uh, in regards to their marriage in verse 25 Nehemiah is forthright he's uncompromising in his speech and he was used to to challenge and check weaker people who were living carelessly and behaving improperly but God's servant Nehemiah was not just a man of talk but he was a man of action he confronted the offenders visited the nobles, challenged the merchants. He took immediate practical steps to rectify a spiritually and morally hazardous situation. He ordered the closing of the city's gates at dusk on the eve of the Sabbath when Nehemiah spoke and acted. It was time for things to change. Does Nehemiah's Sabbath restoration campaign hold any significance for you and I today? I mean, Christians obviously look to Sunday as their key opportunity for worship and witness and rest and service. Still, I believe it's a mistake to transfer uh, the Sabbath teaching of the Old Testament automatically to the Lord's Day of the New Testament. What we see taking place in Nehemiah's ministry is not for us to fervently copy, but it's also not for us to simply dismiss and be like, oh, that doesn't say anything to us today. This 
Old Testament situation offers us a paradigm or a model. And though I believe uh, strict Sabbatarianism should not be imitated, there are some important lessons for us to learn and apply to our Sundays. And we need to emphasize the need for adequate rest in our lives. It's easy to make up excuses for why we put business and our pursuits of pleasure ahead of worship, isn't it? I mean, we'll, we'll say things like this. So, well, I'd like to spend time alone with God every single day, but, but my job requires me to work long hours. And when I get home, I'm exhausted, and I need some downtime to just relax. Or we'll say, I'd like to go to church more often, but Sunday is my only day to sleep in and have a nice breakfast and relax. Or we may say, Sunday is my only day to spend time with my family. Listen, we are spiritually permissive in our lives, and it will affect how we spend our time. Nehemiah is not just some killjoy. Like, oh, Nehemiah is no fun. He just wants to, just wants to kill anything fun. He knew that the nation could never hope to please God if they willfully ignored the laws of God and deprived their world of rest. I'm not talking about rigid regulations and negative prohibitions on Sunday. It does not matter how well-intended they are. It will always lead to legalism if we go down that route, which Jesus condemned in the religious leaders of his day. But we also can't insist that our unbelieving neighbors and those around us automatically endorse our thinking for the best use of Sunday. With that said, what we can do and what we should do is encourage them and others to believe that the idea, idea of one rest day in each week is God's pattern for humanity. Sunday is an excellent day for this enjoyment. Jesus said that the Sabbath was made for man, not just the Israelite people. One of the saddest things in more recent years uh, about the increased pattern of business and, and um, businesses being open on Sunday is it disrupts our family life. Stop and think about it. For some of you, when you were younger, businesses weren't open on Sunday. You couldn't go to, you couldn't go and shop. Stop and think about this. Women are nearly half of the workforce in the United States of America, which includes Sunday. So in our shops, our restaurants, our supermarkets, etc., literally half of those are women. And in some areas, it may be more than half, meaning those homes are without a mother or father on the day when the family might be together and value one another's company. Additionally, there's ample evidence that employees who do not wish to work on Sunday may find themselves unemployed. So in Nehemiah demanding that the people set aside that seventh day for the purpose that God intended it, Nehemiah was emphasizing the centrality of the worship of God, the importance of our witness as followers of Christ, the necessity of rest, and the priority of love. He was saying that loving obedience is better than a full bank account. The prophet's understanding of the Sabbath was that it should be an immense delight. It should be a delight to come to church on Sunday. You should look forward to it. You should say, I want to go see the people of God, and I want to hear that crazy pastor. I don't even know what's going to come out of his mouth next. It shouldn't be an irritating chore. God never demands anything from his people that's not for their good. And when the people ignored the Sabbath, they're damaging the very fabric of their spiritual, social, and moral lives. It was too high a price for temporary economic success. Now let's notice this. Not only was God's Sabbath ignored, but God's standard is ignored. God's standard is ignored. Nehemiah exposed the sins of the people in the temple and the marketplace. Now he turns to the home and the family life. During his absence, every one of the covenant vows had been broken, including their commitment to not marry partners who did not share the same faith. 
What were yesterday's enemies had become today's marriage partners. There is more than one way to destroy a city. We have already seen just how crucial it was for Israel's faith that that its people did not marry unbelieving partners, yet people had disregarded the law. Nehemiah challenges the people with arguments from experience and from Scripture and history in hopes that they will realize the enormity of their sin in sight of God. They had made a series of gross errors, and even though we live in a different context and that is separated by a few millenniums, their serious mistake has a relevant message for us today. We too can grieve God, ignore the warnings of Scripture, and disregard the serious consequences of sin. So let's, let's first see they grieved God. They grieved God. Nehemiah identified their sin as a great evil in which they acted treacherously towards God. It is highly likely that these men married foreign wives to promote their commercial interests because of their materialistic outlook. During the time of Malachi, many Judeans appeared to have divorced their Israelite Israelite wives to marry someone from another country and with a different religious allegiance. The prophet exposed their sin, and it is possible that Malachi's ministry took place during Nehemiah's lifetime. Malachi was afflicted that the Judeans had broken faith and desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughters of a foreign god. In doing this, those who married foreign women had broken faith with their Israelite wives by divorcing them, even though they were bound to them by the marriage covenant. Malachi told them that the Lord hates divorce. You might have heard of that uh, verse quoted over and over again. For Nehemiah, the most severe aspect of such terrible Wickedness was that they had not only uh, had not only unfaithful wives or been unfaithful to the wives of their youth, but they also were unfaithful to God. That's his concern by marrying foreign women. They had broken their part of the agreement. They had made in the covenant. They they said we covenant not to marry foreign women, and then what do they do? They go out and marry foreign women. That's that's Nehemiah's concern. Not only did they grieve God, but they ignored the plain warnings of Scripture. God had not only given them straightforward commands about mixed marriages, He gave illustrations in Scripture about the dangers found in such compromising and forbidden relationships. And so Nehemiah poses a question to the people, right? Directing them to this well-known story of King Solomon. Solomon's offense of marrying foreign women had adversely affected their history in the worst possible way. It had led directly to divisions of the kingdom. The tragic consequence of one man's sin had written one of the darkest chapters in the nation's history. One man's sin. Scripture did not make a secret of the disaster either. King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. They were from the nations that the Lord had told the Israelites not to intermarry with. Yet Solomon held fast to them in love. And as Solomon advanced in years, his wives turned his heart towards other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. He followed Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The book of of Kings tells us, the books of Kings tells us that Solomon built altars for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, on a hill east of Jerusalem, and that all of his foreign wives had their own shrines at which they burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Nehemiah is making this history, or this appeal to history, as well as their knowledge of scripture, and making it clear that even though those who are privileged and successful they can still fall into alarming sin. He said, hey, Solomon was treasured by God. He was applauded by others, and yet he made this awful mistake. It was a drastic warning to every every Israelite born after him. Even so, many of the people in Nehemiah's day totally disregarded the history, totally disregarded the warnings about Scripture, and they said, well, oh well. The strict terms of Nehemiah's rebuke were shatteringly opposite of those Judean men. Some of them had married women that belonged to the very nations that Solomon's wives had come from. Women from those same countries were now bringing up their families in Judah. 
Moabites and Ammonites. The very people who had been excluded from the temples in worship. An Ammonite had lived for a period at the Jerusalem temple, but these women had come to stay permanently in many of their homes. Once established there, the potential damage was incalculable. Solomon's sin had been multiplied in their very presence. And so they grieved God. They ignored the plain warnings of Scripture. And thirdly, they were indifferent to the disastrous consequences of their sin. The mother's role in a family is crucial. Normally, she's the one that spends most of the time with her children. So naturally, they're going to follow her principles, copy her lifestyle, and certainly, in the case of these 5th century children, copy her faith. Inevitably, they would speak her language. And so the likelihood of them learning Hebrew was remote, yet Hebrew was the language in which the scriptures were written. And when they went to the temple, that was a language spoken by the priests and the Levites. Nehemiah discovered that half of the children in Judah and Jerusalem were fluent in their mother's tongue, but had no Hebrew at all. So when God's word was ready, they could, uh, ready to, to be read, they couldn't really understand the message. And there's little doubt that the mothers were maintaining their allegiance to the false gods of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And it would, they would have encouraged their children to, to pray to these gods and taught them about these religions. Because the fathers were more concerned with making money, they had never stopped to consider the effect of their disobedience to God. And if they continued down this path in a short amount of time, Israel's distinctive message would be compromised and weakened to the point of ultimate extinction. The future of Israel's faith demanded their spiritual loyalty and integrity. Whenever we sing, we always involve other people in one way or another. We not only grieve God, or whenever we sin, I don't know why I said sing. We not only grieve God, but we damage ourselves and we affect others. So they they have these mixed marriages. It's a widespread problem. It invaded the life of the priestly families, where the spiritual responsibilities were notably passed on from father to son. And one of the high priest's grandson even had married the daughter of Samballot, who was another one of Israel's bitter opponents. Once again, Nehemiah acts swiftly. What's he say? I drove him away from me. And that's not like, I, hey, I got my car and I drove him away. That's not what happened. He drove him away. He just got done saying he, he laid hands on people and pulled their hair out. I don't know how he drove him away, but use your imagination. The last main point I want us to see is this. Human problems and God's solutions. Human problems and God's solutions. The consequences of events that are described in Nehemiah's closing chapter are incredibly relevant to us today. Which is, our day is adversely affected by secularism, materialism, pluralism, and relativism. Secularism has been described as an attitude of indifference to religious institutions and practice or even religious questions. During Nehemiah's absence, there's this increasing process of indifference that brought gradual erosion of the spiritual and moral standard in Judah. In this final chapter, it's starkly illustrated by the damaging conduct of the priesthood. Eliashib demonstrated his, his indifference by allowing Tobiah to live in the temple courts. They revealed uh, the will of God. The revealed will of God was not a concern. And while the day-to-day functions of the temple were maintained during Nehemiah's absence, the divinely revealed principles for which it stood had been disregarded. Eliashib's permissive behavior betrayed him. And he was not a spiritual role model for the community in which he lived. Judah's secularist lifestyle is further illustrated by the nation's refusal to provide financial support for their spiritual leaders, the Levites. By withholding their tithe, the people are declaring their apathy concerning God's word. They're saying, well, we don't care what God's word says. We're not going to give our tithe. And therefore, they marginalize spiritual priorities. The materialism of God's people was revealed in their total disregard of the provisions of the law concerning the Sabbath. Money mattered more to them than God did. Our society is becoming more and more materialistic every passing year. 
The population of the lottery is evidence of that, right? Millions of people dream of becoming millionaires. If only I could win the lottery. Think of what I could do with all that money. I like to tease and say the lottery is is a tax on people that are poor at math. But anyway, um, that's evidence of how materialistic we are. One winner said this, life is such a drag now because I can afford anything I want. Life has lost its buzz. To be honest, it's all a bit boring. That is one of the terrible aspects of materialism. It will never satisfy you. Herbert Schlossberg described materialism this way. All true needs, such as food, drink, and companionship, are satiable. Legitimate wants, pride, envy, greed, are insatiable. Enough is never enough. That is the horror of the giant in John Bunyan and the wicked witch in C.S. Lewis who give their victims food that causes greater hunger. Pluralism is also found a foothold in Judean homes during this time. Israelite men ignored the teaching of God's word, married partners belonging to an alien faith, and our permissive society, the uncompromising convictions, and the corrective action of Nehemiah would never have been regarded as a virtue, that's for sure. But he knew the preservation of a unique message was at stake. God both inspired and used his steadfast and costly commitment Without his courageous commitment, Israel's faith would have faded away into the background, leaving no mark on the course of the world or religious history. We need resolute and informed defenders of the faith. We need those people who confess Christ and can explain and defend from Scripture their exclusive commitment to Jesus Christ. We need those people who can communicate our incomparable message with conviction and compassion. Relativism rejects the Christian conviction that God has proved with an absolute and and immutable moral standard summarized in the Ten Ten Commandments. It insists that right and wrong are variables. It depends on your personal circumstance, your local context, the prevailing customs, and changing patterns of human behavior. Nehemiah discovered the people had abandoned their holy lifestyle and had become accommodated to the religious laxity of their pagan neighbors. They were becoming just like the surrounding nations. In the context of present-day moral relativism, Christians must determine their ethical standard by the objective teachings of the Word of God, not from some sort of contemporary opinion. They will subject alternative lifestyles to the searching test of Christ's example and this pattern of spirit-inspired living and the complexity of modern ethical decision-making. And they will value the moral insights of fellow believers in the wider context of the church. And remember, they are not unaided in the quest to shape their moral standards by the message of Scripture, the example of Jesus and the guidance of the Spirit, and reforming the bleak spiritual and ethical issues in Israel. Nehemiah offers us some important insights into God's solutions to human problems. Five ways real quick. First, a necessary confession. The book opens and closes with an acknowledgement of a serious human need, and that's confession of sin. Both personal and corporate forms the introduction to Nehemiah's narrative. Before responding to his people's material deprivation, he addresses the more significant problem, their spiritual depredation. On two public occasions, the Israelites confess their sinfulness and rebellion. They acknowledge that throughout their history, they repeatedly disobeyed God and ordered their lives by selfish motivation rather than Scripture. And when Nehemiah confronts their sin of worldliness, it was clear that they would be no significant spiritual progress in life of their community until those gross sins had been exposed, acknowledged, and abandoned. Every major revival in the history of Christianity has seriously addressed the problem of the enormity of sin and its devastating potential for human destruction. And I can't help but feel the same holds true for every single church. 
true church revitalization will not happen until the church addresses the problem of the enormity of sin. We find it easier to adopt new schemes and new little things that we think are going to fix our problem rather than forsake the old sins that are clutching us by the throat. And we don't deal with it. In far too many situations, the churches marginalized sin and acted like it's no big deal. Like Nehemiah's fellow countrymen allowed a sin-ignoring world to dictate its agenda, alter its message, compromise its standards, and change its values. Do not love the world. It's a relevant exhortation for every Christian today. Because we are in danger of cultural absorption and moral decline. We find ourselves all too often unconsciously accommodating contemporary values. Churches become preoccupied with what is marginal. Like, oh, we just need better marketing. We just need a new leadership pattern. And we can easily find ourselves doing the right thing the wrong way for less than worthy reasons. The God-honoring church begins with the reality of sin. And I know that, that until um, uh, we, we make these personal or corporate sins and confess them, little will be achieved that lasts for eternity. Until we acknowledge our failure, it's doubtful we will ever recognize our true potential. Until we sit back and go, that's where I failed. That sin right there. We will never see our true potential. Secondly, we see a renewed priority. Sin can never be identified as the evil power it is unless it's exposed by the spotlight of God's word. Central to Nehemiah's message is humanity's urgent need for a biblical message. Long before he had heard of Israel's troubles, he knew the teaching of Scripture. The unique book did not merely persevere, the, uh, preserve the stories and sayings of, of a bygone age. It pulsated with immediacy, vitality, and relevance. So in Nehemiah's prayers, they echo the inspiring language of God's words. His ambitious ventures are inspired by biblical precedences. His standards shaped by scriptural teaching and his fortitude undergirded by the divine promises of the word of God. On two occasions, the reading of scripture leads to a reformation of practice in the book of Nehemiah. It was biblical preaching and teaching that led to a change in the human life. It wasn't some fancy schmancy little thing that, that, that they found out in the middle of nowhere. It was the word of God because the word of God is what changes people's lives. Far too often today's church has been deceived by contemporary communicators who've marginalized the primacy of expository preaching and they stand up and they weave a nice little good little story that makes you feel good when you walk out of church, but they don't give you the word of God. Everything's been reduced down to a marginal little soundbite or a little bumper sticker theology and the verbal message must have constantly or be constantly changing in variety. Or it will never capture anyone's attention. People will watch their favorite sport. They will listen to their favorite music. Or they will sit through their favorite movies for hours on end. But we are repeatedly told that people have a short attention span. And they're incapable of sustained listening. Really. People can't listen to a preacher preach that long. Preacher, you don't have that much to say. And that reasoning flies in the face of biblical preaching, historical evidence, and contemporary evangelical experience. Congregations which are prepared to allocate prime time to the lively, informed, faithful, and relevant exposition of the Word of God are communities which meet the deepest need of the human heart and mind. Not some feel-good message and a bunch of little sound bites. 
thirdly, we see a decisive affirmation. Over and over again, Nehemiah's message confronts us with the greatness and sufficiency of God. It directs the attention away from peripheral issues to the one overwhelming central theme of the book, the incomparable magnitude of God's nature, the utter reliability of God's truth, the searching splendor of God's holiness, the fathomless depths of God's love, and the limitless resources of God's power. Not everyone who would would describe Nehemiah as one of the most easygoing personalities. Nobody's going to read through the book of Nehemiah and say, man, that Nehemiah, he was one easygoing dude. Nobody's going to say that. But everyone would agree that his substantial accomplishments were inspired and directed by the God who equipped and strengthened Nehemiah. The dominant note of testimony throughout the book deliberately points away from human achievement to divine enabling. Our generation of Christians need to forsake its triumphalism or abandon its despair and recover its confidence in the glorious magnificence of our God. Anything that diverts our attention from our preoccupation with self and fixes our gaze on the transcendent reality and abundant sufficiency of God will surely be in the tradition of Nehemiah and his associates. We have to focus on God. Then we see a radical commitment. Our knowledge of God, however inspiring in its grandeur, can never be left at a, at a level of merely uh, emotion or intellectualism. If our doctrine of God is thoroughly biblical, it will activate the will. It cannot be detached from truth providing little more than uplifting feeling or an elevated thought, inevitably and essentially it will result in holiness of life. Nehemiah's book is about scriptural holiness as God's prescribed pattern of daily personal living and reflected in prayer, demonstrated in surrender, expressed in service, tested in conflict, manifested in love, and proven in perseverance. In our world, the holiness of a believer's life continues to be one of the most potent and persuasive evangelistic instruments you could possibly have. We are reminded that holiness is not a compartmentalized commodity reserved for churches on Sundays. It was a holiness not narrowly confined to Jerusalem's temple, but meant to be evident in Israelites' uh, business practices and their domestic affairs. A holy people is the best advertisement for a transforming message. You want to tell people that the gospel transforms, live a holy life. Show them the gospel transforms. Lastly, an urgent need. The post-exilic Israelite community was endangered by numerous perils, eternal opposition, emotional dejection, doctrinal indifference, spiritual lethargy, and moral compromise. The times were not unlike our times, right? It's no different than today. We face the same thing. Did God meet the needs of the people by calling to service a believer alert enough to listen to God's orders? Did he do that in the book of Nehemiah? Did Nehemiah listen to God and say, God, I will do what you want me to do no matter how hard it is? His day was no different than today. Will God rise up a faithful leader to say, God, I will do what you want no matter how hard it is? Fifth century Judah needed a committed servant of God willing to address their situation with realism to say, this is really how it is. With urgency to say, this is what must be done. And with determination. And God found a man in Nehemiah. Are you that person? Are you that person? The Lord continues to equip leaders. And some of the principal patterns of biblical leadership can be found here in Nehemiah 13. In fact, next week we'll have a message talking about biblical leadership from Nehemiah 13. It'll be a last message in the book of Nehemiah. 
So here's my challenge. In closing. First, don't misuse or abuse God's Sabbath. In other words, is the Sabbath important to you or is the Sabbath to you just like any other day? Now it's Sunday. I guess we'll go to church. We don't have nothing better to do. Don't misuse it. Are you excited to come in here and to be with the people of God and to pray with one another and to encourage one another and to hear the proclamation of God's word and to say, okay, I need to, this is what I need to do in my life based upon what I heard from the word of God. I'm going to sing praise to God. Are you excited about that? Don't misuse or abuse the Sabbath. It's not just for your good, but it's also an opportunity to assist you in sharing the gospel. Don't misuse or abuse it. Secondly, Are you following God's standards? Do you read the scripture? And are you obedient to what you read? Do you come in and hear the proclamation of the word of God? And are you obedient to it? Or do you just put it off thinking, well, it's all going to work out in the end. Surely someone else will take care of that. And lastly, do you understand that even though we have our problems... And even though First Baptist Church of Washington, Illinois has its problems, guess what? God has the solution. Are you confessing your private sin? Do you say, God, search my heart? Is there corporate sin even in our own church that needs to be confessed? Is your priority in your life and of our church the word of God? Or is it the next latest and greatest thing? Are you confident in the magnificence of God? Is your gaze fixed on him? Are you radically committed to the Lord? And finally, are you willingly and urgently listening to the Lord's orders and being obedient to exactly what he's telling you to do? Is that you? Perhaps this morning, something in this message prodded you or spoke to you or something you need to get right. Maybe a sin you need to confess. I don't know. I don't pretend to know the mind of God and how he speaks to his people. I just urge you this morning to respond to God's word. And however, he may be speaking to you. And if you need to do that later, I'd be glad to talk with you later. But I just want to urge you to respond to God's word. Let's close with prayer.